0: thanks, brother. You may be seated. Good morning. morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Like Taylor said, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn. If I haven't met you, you don't know who I am. A church planting resident, which means I'm a a pastor in training, uh, getting ready to start a new Sojourn church in the Brazewood Place neighborhood, Southwest Interloop, kind of Myerland area. Uh, And we've got a team that we're meeting with uh, Sunday evenings at five in our house, a neighborhood parish. Um, that we're building and kind of dream, dreaming about what God's going to do in Brazewood. Um, and so that's, that's, kinda, that's who I am, and it's a joy. It's an honor to be with you uh, and a joy uh, to be preaching God's word, to be practicing preaching, as it, as it, as it were, uh, preparing to be a pastor of this new church plant. Um, today we, th- we get the opportunity uh, to continue uh, the Genesis series that we're in called Foundations is what we're calling it. Uh, we're going to spend a few months in the early chapters of Genesis looking at kind of the the seed from which the rest of the story of the Bible uh, 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 grows. And today, we're at the end of Genesis chapter 1 in a text that's been called the cultural mandate, where right after God creates Adam and Eve, creates the first man and woman, he tells them what he's created them for. Um, So we get to spend some time in that today. And as kind of an entree into this topic, uh, into this passage I want to say, uh, invite us to think a little bit together. Culture is a word that comes up oftentimes these days. It comes up in our conversations a lot. Uh, It makes, uh, we talk about our cultural moment. We talk about what we like about this cultural moment. We talk about what's wrong with our culture in this cultural moment. We talk about how multicultural our city is. The many cultures that you and I encounter on a daily basis as a result of living in a city like Houston. We also talk about things like workplace culture, creating a culture of empowerment, a culture of safety, a culture of success, and on and on we go. Really, though, I think what we do with the word culture is what we wind up doing is we use it so much that we wind up kind of talking around the idea of culture rather than talking about it. And so what is culture? Um, What do we mean When we use the word culture and I'm going to borrow a definition uh, or rather a series of definitions from a pastor named Tim Keller, who you may have heard of. Um, But let's let's think about what culture means. The Latin word for culture essentially meant not to leave nature as it was, but to make something of it. For centuries, culture meant something to do with the actual ground, the earth itself, agriculture, horticulture, not just eating with the ground produced by itself naturally, but tilling the soil, planting seeds, watering and, and bearing fruit, something better than what was there before. By the 17th century, uh, culture began to take on a slightly different meaning. Not just the ground needed cultivation, but so too did human beings. And so we come up with this, this term, a cultured person, someone who's, who's been educated, whose mind has been, the toil has been sealed, seeds have been planted. They've been exposed to all kinds of different things because human beings came to be understood as needing cultivation as well. By the 20th century, so the 1900s, the culture began, the word culture began to be understood in, in kind of a more comprehensive way, and that's kind of how we use it today. Culture is understood as the shared beliefs and values the shared conventions and social practices of a subgroup or an entire society. In other words, culture involves taking all of the raw material of our lives, uh, everything in life, and rearranging that raw material in order to express meaning, in order to express what we think is the good, the true, the real, the important. And and Keller illustrated this in in a few ways to make his point. In farming, of course, you till the ground, but what do you do with music? You take the raw material of sound and you shape it in pleasing ways, in ways not just that, that, that stir the emotions, but in ways that can really create a bed of meaning, a shared meaning for an entire society. Right? There's, there, you, can t- you can listen to music and automatically know what kind of person, what culture of the world uh, that, that, that music is the definition of. What about stories? You take the raw material of words, experiences, products of the imagination and form them into narratives to present to one another to create meaning. All kinds of cultural artifacts can be seen this way. Art, of course, but also technological advances. Even medical advances or legal opinions, right? Uh, Financial models, all of these cultural artifacts, these products of human work and effort, are ordering creation, ordering the raw material of creation in order to create meaning and purpose. Uh, and importance is in one way or another. Late nature was not left as it was, but it was developed into something different. In other words, everything that you and I do in our lives, whether we are shaping our habits intentionally, preparing a meal, building a relationship with someone else, watching TV, typing an email, leaving a pregnant pause before responding to that text, right? arguing politics with someone who's wrong, Right, everything that we do on a daily basis, uh, driving your child to school, signing a lease, attending a church gathering, implementing a new system at work, everything can be understood within the realm of cultivation, creating culture, rearranging right, the physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, raw material uh, in the world around you in order to create meaning and value. And as we walk through this series, through the early chapters of Genesis, we come to this passage, these few verses at the end of chapter one that give an explanation, I think, for why, on a fundamental level, this is the case. They tell us the reason why this is how we are, that we are cultural agents in the world, that by our very nature, we are active, instrumental means through which the world around us is shaped and changed. That this comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God, created by God to be his image bearers, to be ultimate cultural agents representing God in the world, explicitly commissioned by God to shape the raw materials around us in his name for his glory. right, so I do want to say this. Uh, If you're not a Christian and you're with us, uh, whether you're curious, skeptical, or whether you're here trying to make a good impression for someone, um, I want to say two things to you. One, I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to know that you're welcome here. You're welcome with your questions. You're welcome with your objections. Uh, We're glad that you're here, um, and we want you to feel welcome uh, to to ask your questions. This is a safe space for that. The second thing I want to do is I want to invite you, um, if you're not a Christian, uh, as I walk through this sermon, I want to invite you to do, I guess, the same thing that I want to ask the Christians in the room to do, is ask yourself this question. Ask yourself, why is cultivating the world around us so important to us? Simply, why is it so important to us? Every one of us shares an innate sense that we are supposed to change the world. Right, one of the most famous quotes from the past 50 years um, is by uh, a teacher named Mahatma Gandhi. He wasn't a Christian, but he said, be the change you wish to see in the world. You've probably seen that a uh, hundred times, if not in the past week. Right? It's one of the most famous quotes, and that strikes at really a fundamental identity of what it means to be human, that we want, the world around us needs to be changed, and we want to be that change. So the question is, why is this the case? Where does this come from? Why is striving for, for unity, for love, for peace, for justice, why is this a good thing? Is it explainable by, the, by, by some idea of evolutionary self-preservation? Is it explainable by some random kind of consequence of reality that we we stumbled upon the idea of goodness as a collective identity for humanity? Or could it be that we were created with this as our purpose, given to us by a creator who loves us, who cares deeply for our well-being, and who's empowering us even today to live in line with the purpose for which he created us? So I'm going to do my best, of course, to explain what I believe God's telling us about those questions in this passage. Um, And if you have any questions, concerns, objections, I'm not going to be in a hurry afterwards. Please come up. I'm happy to talk to you. And any of our people, we're a church filled with thoughtful men and women and children who would love to talk with you, invite you into our parishes, uh, and work through these questions um, that we have together. So let's begin with that. We're in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is, of course, the Judeo-Christian cosmology, which is a fancy way of saying it's our origin story, the origins of the heavens and the earth, everything that exists, This is our story for how these things came about. Taylor, for the past few weeks, has been addressing a lot of the questions that come up with Genesis 1, a lot of questions of interpretation, and he's helped to lay a foundation, I believe, for how we are to interpret what we read um, as history, as true, um, with humility, but with confidence. And suffice it to say this about Genesis chapter 1. Uh, In the words, if you have an ESV study Bible, it's a great resource, especially if you have questions about the Bible. Um, it's a great, it's a great resource. And, and the study Bible says this in one of its notes. It says chapter one, uh, the main purpose of chapter one is to convey the picture of an all-powerful transcendent God who sets everything in place with consummate skill in conformity to his grand design. We see God creating all things, the heavens and the earth. He creates uh, the lights in the sky. He creates, he, he, from the waters which cover the earth, he pulls up land. He fills this land and the waters and the skies with living creatures. And then at the end of this creation, six days of creation, on the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day, he creates the crown of his creation, the first man and the first woman. woman. See that in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. In his image, he created them. Um, and then after he creates them, he gives them the purpose for which he created them. And that's our passage for today. Here's my plan for this morning. I've got three points. Um, I'm going to be jumping around the story of the Bible a good bit, using these verses at the end of chapter one, and really especially Genesis 1, We'll be in verse 28 for most of our time today. I'm going to use those, these as a springboard to look at the story of the Bible, and I'll work through three points. Point one, we were created to work. Point two, why this doesn't work. And point three, how we get back to work. And so let's begin. Point one, we were created for work. Read with me Genesis 1, verse 28. Right after he created the first man and woman, it says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's stop there. Not long ago, uh, my wife and I uh, gave Tallulah, our three-year-old, would you pull up a picture of Tallulah opening her puzzle? I think it's there. Um, so we gave her, an- she got another one yesterday. Uh, that's, that's from yesterday. But not long ago, we gave her her first puzzle. Um, and the thing about watching a kid open a present uh, is that a kid opens a present, and what do they do? They open it, and they smile, and they look at you. What is this? You know? <laughs> I know I'm supposed to smile because everyone's smiling at me, but what what is this? And so what we did, we we had to explain it to her. We said, "Tulula, this is a puzzle. puzzle." She struggled, of course, to say the word puzzle. She's two, um, and then we had to, say, okay, Tulula, okay, so it's a box. You open the box. There's pieces in it, and so we walked over to the table with her, opened it up, put out the pieces, and had to do the puzzle with her for her uh, in order to show her this is actually really cool, right? That, um, and of course that's. Uh, that is what God was doing here. You can pull the picture down. Thanks, Jordan. Um, That, I think, is what God was doing here. This is the final stage of God's creative work. His, you know, the sixth day of creation, all of these animals were created, all the spaces were created. He fills it all and he creates man and woman. Imagine what this would have been like. He created Adam in in verse, in chapter two, we see that he creates Eve and Adam's like, whoa, man, woman is created. And, you know, then they're there in the garden and they're just kind of like, okay, What is this, you know? And God doesn't leave them in silence to figure it out. He says this. This is what all of this is for. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill all of this creation. Subdue it. Have dominion over all living things. You are the reason I created all of these things. So let's look for a moment into what." God gave them to do and how it was going to be done. First, what did God give them to do exactly? There's three main explicit commands in this verse. One, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So fruitful multiplication. Two, said subdue the earth. And three, have dominion over all of the living things in the earth. So one, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 27 tells us that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. This point alone of course, along with really everything in this sermon. could be its own sermon. Um, But but here's a summary of what I want to say. God, God in his glorious grace, made man and woman as images of his glory, bearing his glory, and they were to spread his glorious image across the earth. Steve Timmis is a pastor in the UK, um, and he summarized it this way. He said, God has always desired to have a people for himself, to whom he would reveal his glory, and through whom he would reveal his glory to the earth. That's the case today. It was the case when he created the first man and woman. The first image bearers, Adam and Eve, were placed in a garden in a specific place in the world and were told by God, I have made all things, and now I have made you in this little garden to continue the work that I started in creation. So share in, God is telling him, share in my creative power and work and go. Be fruitful, multiply, cover the earth, fill it, subdue it. Which brings us to the second and third aspects of these commands. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over all the other living things that I've made. The earth, in its original created state, was formed and filled by God. And outside of the garden that God prepared for this first man and woman, he left the work of ordering the rest of the world, of cultivating it, of making it habitable for human beings to these human beings themselves. He said, go. I made you. As workers, so go and work. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing. The next thing I want to look at is how how did God say that this was supposed to be done? I want to make three observations that I don't want us to blow past in this commission. One, it would take work. It's a simple ob- observation, but it's a, it's an important point to make. God created them to work. And they would enjoy the fruits of their labor. But notice, this is very strong language that God is using. This is kingly language, conquest language. They say, fill the land, subdue it, have dominion over it. This is is strong language. As God has taken the formless void of the earth, and with the word of his power, parted the waters, brought up the earth, shaped it just so, God is extending this same power and mandate to his people, saying, fill the earth, subdue it, continue my work of formation of ordering. God, as the king of his creation, has filled the welter and waste, this formless void, and has worked it to bring about order. And here he's inviting Adam and Eve to do the very same thing. There's a sense of formlessness that God wants Adam and Eve to form. There's a sense of void that God wants Adam and Eve to fill. And this makes sense. Of course, after the image of the divine worker who worked for the first days of creation, God would, it would make sense that his image bearers would be workers themselves doing a very similar kind of work. So God, in a sense, to illustrate this a little bit, God, God is kind of the ultimate delegator in a sense. You might've had a boss who just did everything him or herself, right? You wonder why this seems so wrong in a work environment. Well, Even the God of the universe, when he had every right to, and who could have done everything perfectly had he done it all on his own, he chose, rather than to do it that way, to invite his subjects, you and me, all of humanity, into this work, sharing this work with us. Think of what it's like to live and work in an environment that has a culture of empowerment. Think of the sense of ownership, the sense of meaning, the sense of unity, the sense of honor that we receive when we're welcomed to perform real tasks that require real responsibility. Why does that feel so right? Because that's, why, that's how God made us in the first place. The Garden of Eden wasn't just a place to sit and eat grapes and mangoes, right? It wasn't an eternal wine and cheese party. It was a place that God gave Adam and Eve the model that they were to replicate, to spread, to expand over the face of the, of the earth and he empowered them to do so. He said, go we'll do this. And so that's the first observation. God gave them work to do and it was like life-giving work. It was work that gave them purpose. It gave their lives meaning. They were to take the raw materials of creation and cultivate them, working side by side with God and each other to create a culture that glorified him, thus spreading his heavenly reign over the whole earth. That brings us to the second observation I want to make. They would do this together. How were they to do this? They were to work, and they were to work together. This commission was intrinsically and intensely collaborative. It's not just that God said you guys should work together on this. It's that they can't not work together. Most obviously, of course, fruitful multiplication is not a one-man thing. Procreation requires collaboration. So God built it into the very fabric Fulfilling this commission must be collaborative, a collaborative endeavor, and all of their offspring, furthermore, would be one family, one royal family that would be fruitfully increasing for the sake of collectively carrying God's image forward, working together to spread this heavenly kingdom of God. In other words, God did not create an autocracy, but a beautiful co-regency. Together, they were to do this work of fruitful multiplication, of filling the earth, subduing it, having dominion over all living things bringing all things into subjection to the purposes of God and his kingdom. So there's no sense of competition. There's no sense of envy, of personal kingdom building, all collaborative stewardship of God's kingdom. Humanity is given to be a royal priesthood of God, extending the garden, the temple of God's presence across the face of the earth. And they would do this together, collaboratively, literally co-laboring in the co-mission that God had given him. The third observation I want to make is this, this work would be good, right? This work would be good as a reflection of God's goodness. Look at verse 31. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Up until this point in Genesis 1, things had been good. God created all things good. Now, with man and woman created and commissioned to complete the task of forming and filling God's creation— we get this picture of God sitting back, breathing a perfectly contented sigh after a long work week, and saying, Now I can rest. Now it is very good. Right, we're created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were holy. Their creative work would be holy, would be almost otherworldly due to their image bearers, their, their, their status as image bearers of God. God would be with them. They would be bringing God's creative work to completion. There's so much that could be said about this. Let me, say, let me just say this Genesis 2 where the author zooms in and gives another more detailed account of the creation of man and woman. Uh, we're gonna talk about it in a couple weeks. Um, we're told in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right, so fill the earth and subdue it is what we have in Genesis 1:28, Verse 15, he says, he put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. These words, to work it and to keep it, appear several times throughout the Old Testament. Their primary use here in Genesis 2.15 is, of course, to work and to keep the garden. They were given to work and to keep the garden. But those same words in the Hebrew are used of the office of priests in the temple of God, in the worship service. Right? There's a double entendre. Moses, who, was, who most likely wrote Genesis, would have been quite aware of this parallel. The word for work, to work it, is also used of worship and obedience. The word for keep, keep this garden, is the word for, for watching and serving. And so without going into more details, suffice it to say this, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to work it and to keep it in a way that was understood to be worship and service to their God in the same way that priests in the temple mediate the relationship of God to his creation, extending God's reign and rule into the lives of those who they minister to. In other words, human beings were created by God at the end of this beautifully creative process, this, this beautifully creative week, Um, to be his royal representatives, to continue where God left off, to take the garden that he created for them and place them in and build this paradise, as one commentator put it, build this paradise into a universal city. We are designed to construct this kingdom metropolis to be a human reflection of the authority and activity of the Lord God, who is creator and governor of the world. Those are the words of Meredith Klein, one of my favorite Genesis theologians. God created us in his image. What that means is that man's creation was in a sense a coronation, a placing of us on the throne of the earth to carry out God's reign and rule on earth as his representatives in his name. Priestly, mediatorial role of worshiping God in all that we do, serving him in all of creation and everything that we do is a function of our representative role. We represent God to the world. That's point one. We were created to work. The desires that you and I have to change the world to cultivate it, to make it better than it was when we got here, come from the fact that we were created in God's very image for the purpose of extending and continuing his creative work, of co-laboring with him and with each other to spread his glory over the face of the earth. And this commission is for all humanity. Even today, Christian, non-Christian alike share a genealogy from Adam and Eve. We are all created in the image of God to be this way. And so question is, what happened? Point two, what happened? Why it doesn't work? This sounds great, but it doesn't take too long to look around and see that this beautiful, flourishing picture of fruitful multiplication, subduing the earth, having dominion in a way that extends God's written rules. Don't have to look too far to see this is not exactly what things look like today. It's hard to affirm the goodness of the work of mankind when we see so much pain, suffering, and injustice as a result of evil people and sometimes even well-meaning people. It's hard to see collaboration when we're kind of struck by competition, envy, the backbiting that characterizes the human experience, whether in business, friendships, or even within families. Work itself rather than being a life-giving world-changing meaningful experience that produces products that last into eternity is oftentimes exhausting and disheartening and we we often feel that we can never get it right when we're focusing on the things other things that are important to us like family friends play then we feel like we might we're slacking at work but then if we turn back to work and we start working really hard at work, we start realizing, hey, I think I'm really starting to bring about my true potential at work, really start to see that come to fruition. Then we realize that we've neglected all those other things that are important. And so it's a heart, it's work is exhausting and disheartening. So what happened? What broke? In Genesis 3, we come to a scene that you're probably very familiar with. Adam and Eve don't fulfill their God-given commission. And this breaks everything. Into the garden comes Satan the enemy of God in the form of a serpent, a creature that they were told to rule over, but rather than being watchful guardians and banishing this snake, instead, this serpent rules over them. Satan, the enemy of God, seeking to uh, disrupt God's purposes in the earth, tempts Adam and Eve with this desirable fruit, the one thing that God said that they should not eat, and they do. And there's this really sad irony in how this happens, Satan basically says to Adam and Eve, he says, you can be like God without doing all of this work. Just eat. He said, here's a shortcut. The irony is that they were already like God, and what Satan was telling them not to do was what God created them to do, which is what made them like God, the fact that they were to work. But they fell for it. They were told to have dominion over the animals, and instead they were dominated by a snake. They were, they, they were told to subdue the earth, but instead they were subdued by this fruit of the earth. As a result, they received a curse. Genesis 3, 14 through 19, we're not going to go line by line. We'll say that for a future sermon in this series. But let me summarize for us. Here's what happens in the curse. The task of filling the earth through, multiple, through fruitful multiplication through childbearing would now be painful. A painful experience for the woman. Rather than partnering with her husband, the woman's desire would be to overtake him, to overthrow him. And he, in turn, would rule over her in a domineering fashion. Work itself would be painful and arduous rather than pleasurable and fulfilling. And even all of this hard work of the ground would not bear what we are looking for. It would bear thorns and thistles. All the while, constantly there would be this enmity between the serpent and the child of the woman the children of, of the woman, seeking to interrupt this serpent, this Satan, this enemy, seeking to interrupt everything that the children of Adam and Eve would ever try to do. Ultimately, right, what was meant to be this ever-expanding, glorious kingdom through the good work of men and women, producing beautiful, everlasting cultural artifacts that bring God glory, the products of mankind's hands would instead rot, gradually disintegrating, and humans themselves were condemned to the same. Eventually dying and returning to the dust from which they came. Remember the observations that I made back in the first point of this glorious commission that it would take work, work itself in this curse broke. With the very task they had been given now being made painful and unfruitful. What would it take? The other observation that it would be collaborative collaboration broke. Man and woman now see, the, see each other as adversaries rather than co-laborers. Rather than collaborating, they'd be constantly jockeying for position, competing with each other. That it would be good, that third observation, that it would be a good, holy work, glorious, rather than being fulfilling, rather than leading to everlasting products. The earth would bring forth thorns and thistles, would bring about suffering and pain for mankind. Furthermore, Satan now firmly established as an enemy and he will always be at work perverting even the best desires and intentions of the children of man. So in summary, as a result of their sin and the curse that they incurred as a result, everything about the good commission that God gave to Adam and Eve broke. All of humanity as represented by them inherited this brokenness. And not only would they struggle from a broken orientation from within, but they would be attacked from without, constantly at war, like Justin was saying earlier, constantly at war, rather than being at peace. This shalom that you might have heard is the Hebrew word for peace, fullness, splendor, the fullness of God's presence. There'd be war. And so immediately we see the effects of this. The very next generation, Adam and Eve's sons, Abel and Cain, as they work the ground, Cain kills Abel out of jealous competition. Immediately, this competition costs a human life, and things progress to spiral out of control. Eventually, God decides to send a flood, Uh, so he covers the earth with a flood to wipe out the evil that covered the earth. He decided to restart with this man, Noah, this man whose name meant peace, right? But then, right when Noah comes out of the ark, what does he do? He plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk. He becomes subdued by the earth, just like his ancestors then we come to Abraham. Things look promising. He receives this glorious commission, multiplying his family as numerous as all the star, stars of, uh, in the sky. He said, "Through God said to Abraham, through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then Abraham's own two sons are a divided family, Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob, Isaac's son, is renamed Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. If you've read your Bible, you know that that family is anything but harmonious and loving. There's so many more stories uh, from the history of Israel that I could say. If you don't have much experience with the Bible, I may have lost you, I apologize. Here is what I think we see in the Bible. We see this never ending cycle of faithfulness, prosperity, and hope, which lead to complacency, which lead to idolatry, which lead to rebuke, and then repentance, and then with effort, we come to a place of faithfulness again, and then there's hope, and then there's prosperity. And then there's complacency, which leads to idolatry and sin and rebellion. There's this this never-ending cycle. Always looks good for a moment, but then we realize that the work of man doesn't last the way that it was created to because something is very wrong with the human condition and with the fabric of the cosmos. If anything, we come away from the stories of the Bible with a sense of futility. The book of Ecclesiastes very wisely and thoroughly deals with this topic the futility of man's effort. And it all comes from back in these early chapters of Genesis. This commission that was given became unattainable because we're cursed, plagued, both from within the sense of competition, me first, my kingdom first, and without this battle that we're fighting against the enemy. Even to the present, we see this futility. Every time we come to a time of promise, right, we, we, we seek to maintain it and then It slips through our fingers, this cycle of hard work leading to prosperity, leading to complacency, leading to downturn, leading to wishing things that were, you know, were like they were back then, leads to some sort of change informs hard work, then we come to prosperity, and then the same thing happens again, it slips through our fingers, and we see a downturn. This sense of futility resonates even with us today, and all of it fits right in line with what we read in these early chapters of Genesis. Something is broken. Right, this glorious commissioning of God, this glorious purpose for which we were created, which resonates with each, with each of us, is unattainable. Whatever we build falls apart, and it always happens too soon. The leak in the roof happens too soon. The flood comes before we're ready for it. Right? I got a flat tire, just got new tires. I got a flat tire already. It always catches us by surprise. The work of our hands does not last. And so moving on to point three, How do we get back to work? What I want to look at for a moment is God's promise. God was always going to come back and right the wrong of the world. Even early on, in the words of the curse itself, which again we're going to talk about more in a few weeks, we see this promise. A promise that one would come, a seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. One who would right the wrong that entered God's good creation. And even from early on, we see signs of this blessed one who was to come. Remember Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel? Cain, uh, the rebellious son, killed Abel, and it seemed for a moment as though all hope was lost, but God gave Adam and Eve Seth, this third child, this child of promise, who could carry on this line, through whom this seed of blessing could come. And this line continues through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, all these families that wind up broken and divided nevertheless continue. These these families, these individuals who think maybe this is the one, maybe this is the child of promise. David looked really good with David and then things quickly fell apart. And yet, even as every single one of those families that I just listed falls apart as a result of everything, uh, as, as a result of the curse, as a result of the futility of the human experience, the line continues. God preserves this line. And eventually, The language that God used with his people, speaking to them through his prophets, began to develop in a certain direction. Language of a coming Messiah started to come with increasing clarity. It wasn't anything new. This was nothing other than the serpent crusher that was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. But these prophets proclaimed the coming of the Messiah with greater and greater frequency. Perhaps the most vivid is Isaiah, who talks about this coming of the Messiah in powerful, vivid terms. Listen to this. Isaiah spends the first half of his writings to proclaim woe to God's people and everyone in the world for for disobedience, the futility of their effort. But then in one of the biggest transitions in the Bible, the book turns from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40. And it's almost as if all of history turns. Listen for just a moment. Isaiah 40 starts like this. It says, comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Listen to these words. That her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Did you hear the imagery? Does that remind you of anything? Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. This slavery, this hard work, this sweaty brow work has ended. Comfort and peace are coming for you again. In the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. All of the earth is a wilderness at this point because Adam and Eve weren't able to fulfill their commission. And so what God is saying is through this wilderness, into this wilderness, I'm sending peace and hope and comfort. Every valley lifted up, mountain and hill made low, all of the earth is being remade, reshaped for God's purposes. You hear these creation words, these commissioning that God has given to his people. And what is the purpose? That the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Does that sound familiar? What was God's commission? That his image bearers would cover the earth, showing all flesh the glorious character, love, uh, power of God. And here God is entering the wilderness of the world through the prophet Isaiah saying, just wait. I'm coming to do this myself. And who is Isaiah writing about? Right At the end of this chapter, Isaiah says, but they who wait for the Lord. So this person is not alive yet. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Isaiah then goes on in the later chapters of Isaiah, particularly chapters 50 through 63. He says, he starts to describe this one who is coming to do this work. He would be a man, a glorious king. At the end of his government, there would be be no end to his government. He would bring peace, he would bring power, he would bring unity, he'd be justice, but he'd also be a man of sorrows. He'd be stricken, he'd be afflicted. He would take upon himself the curse that was due for all of humanity. And Isaiah says, wait for him. Just wait for him. He's coming. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall be comforted and renewed. We could not do this ourselves. Humanity is lost in our sin, lost in our rebellion, with our own flesh working against us, with an enemy working against us. We need God's help, and here God is preaching to his people through Isaiah, saying, you're right, you can't do this. Now that you see this, though, take heart. Take heart. I am sending someone to come and do this for you. And so sure enough, 600 years later, here comes one from the wilderness, John the Baptist, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John, are you the one? I'm not the one. One is coming. Whose sandals I am unfit to tie. And then this one who John the Baptist sees walking down to the river to be baptized, John is almost speechless. He says, it's him. That's him, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is baptized there by John the Baptist. And what does Jesus do right after his baptism? Do you remember? He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And consider God sends him into this wasteland to be tempted by Satan. And what does Christ do? He conquers Satan. He upholds God's command perfectly. He succeeds where Adam didn't. And then he re-enters civilization. But consider, consider Satan's temptation to Jesus. He shows Jesus one of the things that he's tempted by. He shows Jesus the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, Jesus, all of this can be yours to rule over if you just worship me. Same exact temptation. You have work set before you. Listen, you can have all of this. You don't need to do the work. And Jesus says, no. I was created to work. I was created for this work. Christ's work, though, wasn't the glorious work of filling the earth and subduing it. Christ's work was to go to the earth and be subdued by it in our place. Take the cross, the tree, not of life, but of death, to take our place there so that we can be freed from our bondage to Satan's schemes into our own flesh. And what did Christ say? At the end of John 16. What did Christ say? He said, "I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you have you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." What, listen to this language, commissioning language. I have overcome, takes us back to the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Christ says, I have done this and in me, you can do this also. So you see, far more than simply coming to proclaim and demonstrate God's love for us and save us us from our sins, which Christ certainly did do those things. But far more than that, Christ came to effect the change that God had been promising to do all along. He came to form this new humanity, a line different from the line of cursing that came from Adam, to be a new Adam, as the Apostle Paul refers to him a few times, in whose line, this new Adam, whose line, the original purpose of humanity would be fully restored. In Christ, right? In Christ, God came down from heaven to take up his dwelling place with us again as we read in John chapter one. And after Christ's resurrection and ascension, God sent the Holy Spirit, the very person and power and presence of God to build us, this new humanity, into a perfect dwelling place for him by the spirit. We've been filled with the spirit, the New Testament teaches us, which means that God's people are empowered to walk in a way that is pleasing to God once again. We've been empowered to engage in the patient work of cultivating and shaping our lives, all of our hearts, minds, souls, strength, patiently, hand in hand with God, so that we might be conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, the second Adam, the one who's created to work, to fulfill the commission of God. We've been armed with the Holy Spirit. God empowers us both to fight our sin and Satan and win. Right. Jesus and his apostles teach through their words in the New Testament about our authority in the spiritual realm, which includes, among other things, real authority in forgiving sins in Jesus' name. We've been given real authority in rebuking demonic evil forces. We've been given the, the full armor of God, as, Paul, as the apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, to don so that we can withstand the attacks of this enemy who is warring against us. We have been sent in Jesus' name to extend God's mercy across the earth with the fullness of his authority which he gives to us. The theologian N.T. Wright wrote a book recently uh, entitled The Day the Revolution Began. And I love that title. The Day the Revolution Began. One of the things that N.T. Wright is trying to reclaim and, and show us in that book is that Christ's death on a cross was more than simply salvation from sins. But it marks the beginning of a revolution a revolution that recommissioned this new humanity to a new and at the same time very old vocation, that of being a royal priesthood tasked with restoring and reconciling all of God's creation. That's what Christ did on the cross. At the end of his ministry, Jesus gave what what, what has been called the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. We can very much understand that as the Great Recommission, God said in this first great commission in Genesis one twenty eight, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Christ says very much the same thing. Go and make disciples of all the earth. Right? In other words, go and make worshipers of God. Go make priests of God. Go make upright Adam and Eve's. Right? To finally pick up where the first ones left off to make this world into the kingdom of God. So back to culture. What kind of culture are we invited to and empowered to by Christ pursue? We've been empowered in Christ to pursue a culture of collaboration, a culture of unity, a culture of celebration, joy, and love. Whether we're talking about life in the church, life in the home, in the family, or life in the the public square, we've been called and invited and empowered to create this culture of collaboration, unity, love, joy, peace, friendship. We've been we've been empowered to pursue a culture of hard work, a culture of pursuit of the good in keeping with God's word of life that He's given to us, a culture of eager expectation for God to do what only God can do, and yet invite us into the process of making all things more like they will be in the new heavens and new earth. Right? We've been invited to hard work, work that will truly last. But really, what does this mean? That all sounds great. What does this mean for you and for me? Sojourn, this means that we are together, not apart. This means that we are one, that we reconcile, we forgive, and we love in the face of wrongdoing rather than dividing and scattering. This means that we work for and with one another rather than against each other, rather than in envy of or competition against one another. We constantly seek to outdo one another in showing honor as we seek to engage the culture around us with the love of Christ as the Lord leads us. And in order to make this happen, we have work to do. We have cultivation work to do. Everything that we do matters and is a participation in the heavenly ministry to which you've been called, brothers, sisters, friends. This goes for the cultivation of the world, cultivation of the relationships around you. It also means the cultivation of your own soul is important. Our lives are lives of constant growth, constant participation in the sanctification of our souls, just as we have been invited to participate in the cultivation of the world around us. We've been invited to work together with God, knowing that it's God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, but to work our salvation out with fear and trembling, to pursue sanctification together with God, to see our heart, mind, soul, strength, all of your thoughts, feelings, desires, and will come out of focus when it comes to the kingdom of self and come totally in focus in the kingdom of God, pursuing the kingdom of God. And so I guess that's how I'll close. What is is the next step of obedience that God is inviting you to? There is a next step for every single one of us in this room, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or whether you consider yourself far from God with nothing to do. Wanting nothing to do with him, every single one of us is being invited by this word, by this reality, by the Holy Spirit right now. What is the next step of faithful obedience? What is the next step of growth that God is inviting you into, brothers and sisters? This is a glorious task that we've been given, and God has provided the way for us to this this great commission that God gives us—to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to, to pursue the good of the world, to pursue love. Peace, joy, all the good things that we know are right, God has empowered us to do so in Christ, so come to him. Jesus invites, I will put you back to work. I'm not going to just invite you to be saved so that you can sit on the couch and watch other people do the work. I'm going to invite you. Jesus said, I'm going to invite you. Follow, what did he say to his first disciples? He didn't say, follow me and sit and listen to while I talk. He said, follow me, I'm going to make you fishermen. Take up, if anyone would follow me, lay down your life, take up your cross, and come. Let's go. Let's get to work. The invitation is to come to him. There's nothing we must do but look at him and say, Christ, I want you, I need you. Jesus himself said, knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you shall find. Ask, and you shall receive. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you want that, ask. Jesus says, if you ask and you seek, you shall find Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning, for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word and for the good news of your salvation. Thank you for bringing into greater clarity for me and hopefully for us the fact that you have made it possible for us to get back to work the way that we know that we were meant to. Go empower us, Lord. Give us faith. Show us the way to follow you more and more today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of our lives until we see you face to face. We love you, Lord. Be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.